We've been looking at Ephesians chapter 6, which is a quintessential passage that describes for us the armor that the Christian soldier must wear in order to stand firm against Satan. It's basically the most drop-dead, serious type of uh, spiritual thinking that you can do, which is to consider your worst enemy, Satan, and then to prepare yourself for the attacks that you will face as a Christian, as a Christian uh, family, as a Christian church, as a Christian individual, as a Christian at large in our culture. And so uh, I'd like to invite you, if you haven't heard those and you would like to, they're all online at podbean.com slash evergreenchapel. I think if you search us there, we are also on iTunes as a podcast, and you can catch up on those if you would find that helpful. But this morning we are concluding. We're going to finish it off, and uh, there's no accident in how the Apostle Paul wrote this. He concludes with the sword. So let me read uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, which we're going to look at this morning. And take the helmet, which is the crowning uh, piece on the top of the head of the soldier. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So Paul finishes there with a prayer for himself, for boldness in light of the application of the armor. Let me pray before we begin uh, this passage. Father, this morning we come to that crowning jewel, that central uh, fixture of, of the human uh, existence, Lord, which is the, the possession of your word, the knowledge of your word, and the wielding of your word, and the believing of your word. Lord, as we come to it in your uh, scriptures, we pray that our hearts would be soft and open. Lord, that you would even pierce through hard hearts this morning. That you would pierce through those who are already resisting uh, your call. Lord, may you divide even soul and spirit this morning by your word. Lord, that we would be open before you as a God, as, as our God, saying, uh, Lord, receive me. So, Father, I pray that each and every person here would find peace with Christ um, by the revelation of your word and by the grace of God through the blood of Christ. So we anticipate this, God, and we turn our, art, our eyes and our hearts to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's been five weeks. It's been five weeks of looking at spiritual armor, which basically corresponds to spiritual attack. Each piece of armor notifies the Christian as to what type of attack they're going to receive. And I, I don't have time this morning. We do have a full message to, to review them all. But again, look those up and figure out how Satan's going to attack so that you can adorn the right piece of armor. Last week, we did look at this uh, second last piece, which is the helmet. And the helmet is really paired here in the diction of the text. In the grammar of the text, it's paired with the sword. The helmet and the sword were the last two pieces of armor to go on. So the sword is literally the last thing that the soldier takes a hold of. But what we need to remember is that these two pieces are paired together. But then when we come to the helmet, the helmet guards the principal piece of the human, right? The head, the intellect, the mind, the reasoning, the rationale, the logic, everything guarded in the mind. 
And so the helmet goes on to give the soldier confidence to rush into the battle. And then that last piece, going with the offensive mentality of the soldier, we are given our offensive weapon. Because all the confidence and gusto in the world is not going to win the battle. You can rush in with the helmet, but if you don't have a sword, you're dead anyway. So while the helmet gives us confidence and assurance, the sword gives us a dangerous weapon. It gives us the ability to respond and to actually uh, take down, to correct and to take hold of and to gain victory. Not only is the sword the prized jewel of the Christian, but think of it in terms of a soldier. The soldier would know his own sword. It's his own prized possession. The soldier would often sharpen and care for his own blade. Soldiers take care of and they prize their own swords. They practice with them. A soldier would know the length, the weight, and the balance of his own sword. He would practice motions over and over and over again, knowing how his body would respond to the weight and feeling of the sword as he uses it to attack. The soldier would thus trust those movements, practiced in private over and in training over and over and over again, the soldier begins to trust the movements, knowing where the sword is going, knowing the distance he needs to be to strike, knowing what it costs to be in battle. The sword is what makes all the difference. The sword is what makes the soldier a dangerous unit in battle. Paul says explicitly here, explicitly here that the sword is the word of God. That's your weapon. That is your sword. It's yours for battle, and it makes all of the difference. The word of God, by his own declaration, is that which created all things. It's that which sustains and continues all things. It's that which measures all things. And it's that by which he will conclude all things. The word of God performs all of those tasks in the course of human history. And if you read your Bibles, you'll notice that. Creation flows from the word of God. The sustaining of the laws of nature flow from the word of God. The measurement of all human activity and motives and everything is measured by the word of God. And human history will conclude by the word of God. The heart and soul of Christian warfare is the use of this weapon. The heart and soul of Christian warfare is the use of this weapon. The word of God is the passion of my life. The word of God is that which awakened me to Christ in the first place. The word of God is that which called me into ministry. The word of God is that which sustains my life and my confidence today. It's the ruling guide for our church. So if you're new here, welcome. This is a taste of what we're about. Uh, it's, it's Bible, 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 Bible. Our church depends on it. Our church studies it. Our church uh, lifts it out. Our church attempts to apply it. Our church studies it and wrestles with it. Our church depends on the Bible utterly and completely. You'll see as you um, spend more time with us that we actually have three commitments as a church. You're going to see basically in our church we have three commitments as a church. Some churches call them pillars, stones. We call them commitments. This is what we're committed to as a church. You're going to see it right here. Bible witness and cultivate. We believe that a, a biblical church and a, and a biblical person begins with, I gave it away, the Bible. 
studying the Bible, believing the Bible. Basically, our commitment is biblical literacy for everybody. That is for children, for young adults, for adults, for you. Biblical literacy is the foundation of what we do. You, you can't do anything right if you're not biblically literate. And let me tell you, if you think that's redundant for a Christian church, go talk to a lot of Christians and find out what they believe about the Bible. Half of them don't have a clue what it says. And you know what? They are not the ones to blame. The shepherds are the ones to blame. If you look at God's word, God holds the shepherds accountable for teaching the sheep. And so I don't want to be a church at the end of my life and at the end of my time when I come before Christ, he says, what did you teach them? If it's anything but the Bible, I am in trouble. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But Tim, you can go back to that uh, sermon slide. But I wanted to let you know that that is commitment number one as a church. That's why you will find 75% of our time is spent studying and proclaiming the Bible. Psalm 119.89, one of my favorite passages, says, Your word, O Lord, is firmly fixed in the heavens, which means it's not going anywhere. Look at the rafters in this building. They're not about to fall down. They're not about to, the bolts aren't about to let go. That's firmly fixed in the ceiling. The word of God is firmly fixed in the heavens. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. In other words, through the word of God did the universe come into being. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word came in the flesh. The word came and pitched a tent among his people. The Messiah, as we just sang about. John chapter 13, that living word would later say to his disciples, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. In other words, you are made right before God by the word of Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 says, So there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and he shall not judge by what his eyes see, or settle disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. That's a euphemism for his word. He will strike the nations by his word. Revelation 19 gives us a different angle on that same picture. John writes in Revelation 19, 11, 15, 11 and 15, I saw a white horse whose rider was called Faithful and True. With justice he wages war. Verse 15 says, Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. God's own measure is his word. God's own weapon is his word. And likewise, it is our measure and it is our weapon. So coming out of our text, it's a short text that I read more than I'm actually studying this morning. Take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That, that, that's a basic construction there. And then we have the mode of using it, praying at all times. Praying is this ongoing verb. It's the way that you use the sword. But basically our text is going to show us two basic things. Number one is that the noun word in this text Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. 
There are multiple Greek words or phrases that get translated as the word word. Okay, in this one, it's a less common phrase. The word in Greek is rhema. The word is rhema, as opposed to the much more common logos. Logos uh, is the more common noun for translated word. It literally just means word. In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was God. The logos was with God and was God. But here we have this less common rhema. You see this in the Gospels a lot more often, and it's usually referred to Jesus when he says something. Like when the rooster crows and Peter remembers the words of Jesus, that's the word rhema. It's not the logos of Jesus, it's the rhema. In other words, he remembered the sayings of Jesus. He remembered the phrases that he said. And there's other uh, examples as well. Most of them are basically used when Jesus is making a prophecy. In other words, when he's saying something that he wants remembered or thought of or reflected on. Or when he's publicly teaching or refuting. When he's making a stand, basically. When he's saying something publicly that is clashing with some entity in the culture, that's the word rhema. That's the word that's used here in Ephesians chapter 6. This implies for us the use of that weapon. How is this weapon to be used? He's not speaking of it merely as the logos, which is sort of your word is firmly fixed. It's there. You can refer to it. You can contemplate it. You can consult it. You can consider it. It's just there. The logos, it's, it's there. God has set his word in the heavens. He made the earth in the heavens by his word. But the word rhema implies something different. It means to speak. It really carries with it the connotation of conflict or contending. In other words, this sword must be used. It must be thrust. It must be swung. This sword must contend with and come in contact with the enemy. Paul later describes that enemy as lofty thoughts raised up against the knowledge of Christ. Guess what tears those down? The sharp two-edged sword. So this is a phrase that would demand that we would contend, that we would use it. We just recently passed um, a terrible anniversary in the history of Canada. Five years ago in October, Nathan Cirillo was shot dead guarding the unmarked tomb in Ottawa. How many of you remember that? What a terrible, terrible day that was. One of the worst things, I, I think that probably shocked most of us that came out of that, was when we found out that Nathan Cirillo's gun had no bullets in it. His gun had no bullets in it. His partner's gun had no bullets in it. Cirillo was shot in the back uh, by that madman. There were no bullets in either of those Canadian soldiers' guns. After they finally reinstated these ceremonial guards at the, the unmarked tomb, instead of loading their guns with bullets, the authorities decided that the Canadian soldiers would be stood guard over by local police officers. This is a, this is a shame on a country. But what I'm putting forth to you, this is an analogy for when the church basically says, well, we like to have our guns. We like to say we have the Bible. Here, we, here it is. 
but we're afraid to use it. We're afraid to swing it. We're afraid to say what it says. We're afraid to actually pull the trigger. We're afraid to actually assert the truth of God in the public sphere. This is the church that says we're going to stand here with our guns, but heaven forbid we put bullets in them. It's a shame on our country, and it's a shame when it happens in the church. It was sad in the first place, and it became sadder with the inability to assert um, sovereignty over that space. Now, what we need to recognize is that the, the rhema flows from the logos. I don't want you to miss this. There are some that contend that rhema is sort of this personal, subjective, um, ethereal, intangible sort of relationship with God. That the logos, that's the Bible. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about like a special word from God. Like just you and the Lord and the Lord speaks something to you. That's how some contend the use of the word rhema is to be used. I would venture that that is wrong. It's how the words are used. It's not where the words come from. So there are some that try to separate the scriptures from the word who is Jesus Christ. There's a famous pastor in southern Ontario who says, we believe in the authoritative, infallible word of God, and his name is Jesus. Now, of course, we believe that. We believe that to be true, but it's intentionally misleading to say, well, well, the Bible, it helps us get there, but it's not really it. Wrong. Christ taught over and over and over again that the Old Testament was synonymous with his authority, that his words were synonymous with scripture, and that his apostles carried his message forward. Beware anybody who tries to separate the word authoritatively from Jesus Christ from the scriptures that we have. The rhema is just how you use it. The rhema is just the contending with it. It flows from the logos. It flows from the word of God firmly fixed in the heavens and revealed to us in the Bible. Now, this, this sermon is not a defense for or an apologetic for the canon, for where we got it, for the 66 books. You can talk to me about that. I can help you find resources um, to better your understanding of that. This is not a defense for the canon, but this is a call to use it. This is a call to assert it and to believe it and to implement it in your life. And so that's the first thing we need to point out is the, the distinction between rhema and logos and how those two work together. The second thing is that the continual and watchful prayer must attend the use of the word. This is so critical. But what, what Paul is saying here is, he says, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying. Praying. He doesn't say, and then also pray. You'd almost think of it as a soldier moving through battle, literally asking for guidance for his movements, praying for the power of the Spirit to attend the Word of God. The Spirit must do the work. No matter how much this, these messages drive us to get the armor on and to step forward and to be bold and to be confident, it must be the Spirit of God which accomplishes the victory. It has to be. Without prayer, the power of God is bridled. It's unrealized. It's uncashed in. That's why prayer is so critical for us as a church. We pray every single morning at 9.30 before we worship together that God would attend in power the preaching of his word. Kevin and Carol Shaw host prayer every single Sunday night, whether anybody comes or not, to lift up the needs of the saints and to pray for greater fruit in the kingdom of God. Prayer is so critical to the work that we do here as a church. Paul says, use it praying at all times 
with prayer and supplication, keeping watch, be watchful, be an attendant soldier. So those are the two things that our text puts before us. It's that it's rhema and that it's prayerful and watchful. Now, there's basically three headings that I want to show you where the Word of God needs to be used and how to use it a little bit. I wish we had a five-part series just on this topic, but I want to whet your appetite and maybe help you expose in your own life some areas that you are not asserting the Word. You may be believing it, but you are not asserting it. You are not contending with it. And I pray that all of us come under the, the watchful eye of the Scriptures, and I know myself more than anybody needs to apply this to a greater degree in my life. So let the scriptures speak. Number one, we need it in the church. We need to contend for the word in the church. And you would, again, think this is such a redundant statement. Oh, isn't this so pointless? Of course, churches are the Bible places. Churches are where the Bible is believed. Sadly, I would have to disagree. Now, before we look at that, number one is that the vision for the church, according to Paul in 1 Timothy 3.16, is that the church which means the people of God who are redeemed, who gather together, they are the pillar and buttress of the truth in the world. In other words, when God wanted to plant down an outpost for his word, a place where people could know what he said and know what the plan of humanity is, he said, I'm going to do it with the church. That's how he chose to do it. Do you have a problem with that? Take it up with God. It's the church that's the pillar and buttress of the truth. Not you on YouTube or on your blog or on Twitter. You are not the pillar and buttress of the truth, nor am I. But the church is. So the church must take all the more seriously the degree to which we believe and understand and apply the word of God. Think about this. The extent to which we apply and speak the truth is the extent to which the world has access to that truth. Think about that. If the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, when the church gives up or sacrifices or runs away from that responsibility, their light has gone out. They have become, as the Proverbs say, waterless clouds, useless. You look up and you think, good, there's water coming, and then nothing comes. When you walk into a church and the scriptures are not proclaimed, it's waterless clouds. It's meaningless. It's hot air. It's useless. Turn around and go home. Put ribs in the slow cooker for gray cup. If the word of God is not proclaimed in the church, that church is abandoning its call from the Lord. That means that in the church, every disagreement that we have, every argument that we have that goes be, you know, beneath skin deep, should be based on the interpretation of the word. We need to bring all of our preferences all of our history, all of our doubts, all of our hurts, all of our hang-ups. We need to bring them into subjection to the Word of God. Now, that's hard to do. We are all doing that in process. But what I want to say is if you have a serious disagreement with another Christian, it should be based on how you understand the Word. You don't bring your feelings to the discussion, although they're important and they help shape who you are. You say, am I in submission to the word? Is this church in submission to the word? That's the question. James chapter 3. James, the brother of Jesus, said this, let not many of you become teachers. In other words, you want to be a teacher in the church? Just hold your horses. Steady the reins, folks. Why? Knowing that you will incur stricter judgment. From who? Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. 
If you want to come into the church and mess around with the word by being a teacher, you have to answer to the husband. The most serious words in scripture are spoken against those who are inside the people of God. Always. It's shepherds who lead the sheep astray that God has the most severe wrath for because they are the ones who ought to know better. This is how seriously God takes his word in his church. Often revival is most needed, and I believe this to be so in our day. I planted Evergreen Chapel to revive the church. We're going to reach the lost. We are. I know we are. But folks, we need to revive and renew ourselves in here first. That has got to happen first. And God knows it to be true. Ezekiel chapter 37 is a very famous vision of, of dry bones. And some people think, well, this, is a, this means that Christians should go raise the dead out of graves. No, no, no. This is a metaphor for God's people. Ezekiel says, the hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out in the spirit into the Lord and sat me down in the middle of a valley. And it was full of bones. Bones are the most dead of the dead. They're not recently dead. They're as dead as dead can be. There is no longer any organs, any tissue, any soft tissue. There's nothing. A bone is the structure that has been left behind by the human being. There's a, a deep biology lesson for you. Many of you probably knew that. And he led me around among them. He was looking. He was going among these dry bones. And there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. There's some more biology for you. In other words, they are dead. They were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? Hey, prophet, what do you think? Do these bones look like they're about to shake? Do these bones look like they're about to wake up? Well, I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. Good answer. Uh, yeah, you probably know the answer to this one, God. I'm going to let you take this. And he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. You want to see these bones live? Say to them, hear the word. Thus says the Lord, of God, uh, the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. You shall know when I make you alive that I am the Lord. So Ezekiel prophesied, and then he said, he goes through all the prophecies, and then down in 11, the Lord said to him, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, and I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And it happened. Ezekiel says he saw an exceedingly great army rise up. How did this happen? The Lord sent a prophet to his people to renew them by believing and hearing in the word of the Lord. That's what the church needs today, folks. The church needs prophets of God who will declare the word of the Lord to them, saying, believe and know that the Lord God is one and he is your Lord. Return to him. We are like those dry bones that need sinews. Rise up by the word of the Lord. Unfortunately, churches are popping up everywhere that literally advertise, come hang out and talk about the Bible with us. 
As if doctrine and scriptural believing and application is a matter of consensus. It's a matter of chit-chat. It's a matter of casual conversation. You will not find that anywhere in scripture. By the way, this does not make me more important than you because I'm the preacher and you're not. I am in subjection to every word that comes out of my own mouth. To a greater degree, I'm under stricter judgment. This does not make me more special, but this is how God chose to make his word known. Through a preacher, through a prophet. And unfortunately, those churches languish for power. They languish for unity. They languish in every way that is meaningful to the body of Christ because they have never been instructed in the word. 2 Peter 3.16, and this is an indictment on the church. This is why we need it in the church. 2 Peter 3.16, Peter writes of his colleague Paul. Paul writes the same way in all his letters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. You think our worst enemies are outside the church. So often, the ignorant and unstable, they come into the church and they twist the scriptures, especially the ones that are hard to understand or hard to obey. They twist them. Beware the teacher who begins with a passage and when he is finished has made it to mean anything except that which it states plainly. Beware the teacher that will take a plain passage of scripture and by the end of them explaining it, it means anything but what it seems to say. I see it all the time. I wade through the filth in order to protect you as best I can. Now, by God's grace, I pray that I'm not doing that here, but you have podcasting, you have YouTube, you have TBN, you have all kinds of stuff that you can access, all manner of nonsense out there. Guard yourself. Guard your mind. Guard your heart. Let the word of God be pure and unadulterated and untampered with. So the church needs it. Many like the hearing of the word, few like the applying of it. Many like the hearing of the word, but when the applying of the word begins, and I'm not saying that I'm without fault or this church is without fault, but many say, that's not for me. That's what contending means. That means if we say we actually believe it, how are we organizing our church governance? How are we talking about money? How are we talking about holiness and purity and how the church should run? Are we actually fighting it from the scriptures or are we just doing what makes us comfortable? And again, I put myself in the spotlight when I say this. I'm held accountable to this reality. Which is why I pray by God's grace we are found faithful and obedient to the scriptures. But everyone wants to hear an encouraging message, but as soon as they're held accountable to some standard in the scriptures, it becomes very uncomfortable. That's what rhema means. Rhema means don't just hear it. Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 6 where he says there's two men. They both start building a house. One of them digs and digs and digs, and then he keeps digging until he hits bedrock. A lot of you guys have built houses. What's the absolute best thing you can do for your house? You dig down until you hit bedrock. Then you lay your footings. You build your house on sand. It sifts, it shifts, it freezes, it hauls, and the house cracks. And so one builder dug all the way down, laid his foundation on the rock. The other builder was like, that takes way too long. Do you know how much foundations cost? I'm just going to start framing. Starts getting his house up. He gets his house up way quicker. Boom, he's got the roof on there. He's got windows in. He's like, what are you doing pouring a foundation over there? 
Then when the floods came, which house was destroyed? The one that the guy just threw the framing up super quick. Didn't want to worry about the foundation. Jesus describes those two people. One, the guy who built down onto the rock, he says, this is the one who hears my word and does it. This is the one who hears my word and just doesn't care. The one who hears my word and does it. He is the one with a house built upon a firm foundation. Friends, when your habits, when your life decisions actually reflect what you see in the scriptures, you are building for yourself a solid life, a solid foundation. And again, I think a lot of churches can pop up quick and fill a building really quick. But if there is not the doing of the word, it's going to be washed away as soon as persecution comes. It's going to be washed away as soon as a disagreement comes. It's going to be washed away as soon as something happens. We need to be dependent on the word. Stop trusting in our instincts. The church needs it. Number two, we need it personally. We need it personally. Here's a reality that you may not consider. The church does not have dominion over your personal life. Some of you have been a little wary about our talk about elders because elders kind of guard the flock and they're like, is an elder going to make me do stuff? Is an elder going to reprimand me for taking the wrong job? Or, you know, if I'm caught renting a movie that I shouldn't, am I, am I going to be hauled in front of the church and embarrassed by the elders? Well, you need to recognize that the church does not have dominion over your personal life. I have no right to barge into your house, to look at your tax returns, even to look at how much money you choose to give to the Lord through the church. I have no right over that. I have no authority over your children. I have no authority over your moral life. I have no authority over anything. The church is a voluntary association. You can leave the church at any time you want and go do whatever you want. But friends, the church is here to help you figure out how to order your life. I don't have the authority to do it for you. We teach Sunday school here on Sunday mornings. That's great, but we cannot raise your kids for you. You've got to do more than just the Sunday school lesson on Sundays. That's why Mikhail and Sonia have given us uh, these devotional packages that we can take home and repeat the lessons. You need to do this for yourself. The Word of God does not have power if you think that it can be done by somebody else in your life. You need to take it and say, that is for me. I'm going to raise my kids that way. I'm going to live my life that way. Your sphere is sovereign. Your personal life, you're sovereign over your personal life in terms of under the Lord. The church can't do it for you. So just as a question, do you raise your kids to think in biblical concepts, to use biblical language like justice, righteousness, obedience, grace, and mercy? And do you act this out as you're disciplining and instructing them? I know for me, parenting can often decline into whatever works. Whatever just keeps the peace for some amount of time. We just default to that. Sometimes we do that in our relationships too, right? It's like, we'll just do whatever keeps the peace. I don't want to confront that person because it's just, I'm just balancing a thing here. Canadians are so guilty of this. We just want to keep the status quo. We just want to keep the boat level. Heaven forbid the boat rock by declaring the truth or, or believing or asserting it. Scriptures say, train a child in the way he should go, and then when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's called digging down and building on a solid foundation. A kid, when he or she does not even know it, is being built on a solid foundation so that when they are old, when they are sinning and rebelling, they know that they're doing it. The worst is when a Christian child grows up and doesn't know the difference between sin and righteousness. I also wonder, how much hypocrisy do you tolerate in yourself? 
and I, again, I put myself under the spotlight. Do, do you strive for a repentant attitude to clean out your heart, to confess sin? You know, what, what do you tolerate in terms of entertainment? Would you, is there, are there things that you enjoy in entertainment that you would be um, appalled to take part in yourself or say yourself? Do you discipline in your children behavior that you allow them to view as entertainment? That's not to judge you. That's just to say that's going to make parenting very hard. If your children are allowed to do something in one sphere and then not in another, it's confusing. This is why consistency means that we, that we, we do what we say all the way through. Priority means putting what's first first. Teaching your children what is first. Do you put your priorities straight in your own life? If you're a grown adult, you're sovereign. No one's telling you what to do. But are you prioritizing the things of God and the word of God and everything that you do? We all need personal revival, and it's according to the word of the Lord. It's according to the word of God. Don't tolerate hypocrisy in and of yourself. Because, again, that's the thing about hypocrisy. Most of us can't detect it. I can't detect it in you. You can say whatever you want to me. I'll believe you. I'm a very trusting person. You know, maybe your spouse can detect it, but hypocrisy is easy to hide. And so I challenge you, you are the only one who can root it out. You are the only one who can dig down and say, this is not good enough. This is not good enough. I want to have true obedience to the Lord. So we need it in the church. We need it personally because the church can't do all that for you. And then third, we need it in the culture. We need it in the culture. Putting on the helmet says, I'm going to go where God's called me to go and I'm going to say, I'm going to swing where he tells me to swing. Again, for you, that might be your family. It might be a relationship in your home. It might be a relationship with an in-law or a mother or a spouse. It might be saying, I'm not going to tolerate this inconsistency anymore and I'm going to face it. For others of us, it might be more public. I'll tell you one thing, mine is going to be much more public than yours. I'm a public figure. I'm a public proclaimer and teacher of the word of God. I am going to face these cultural issues first before many of you. And that's okay. That's what I'm called to. But what I want you to ask is, don't wait for it to come to you. Find that which is out of line with God's word and make it right. Swing your sword. Rhema the word. Get it going. I, I mean, I don't know how else to say it. It's been rightly said that the culture is actually downstream from the church. I think a lot of us probably have that backwards. We think, we think, oh, the church is, is getting worse and worse because of the culture. Wrong. I think the culture is getting worse and worse and worse because of us. Now, I know that everybody is responsible for their own sin, but what, what I'm going to put to you is that what you are seeing in Canada right now is the church basically saying, we have nothing to do with public life. Oh, we don't know what the Bible says about that. When the church vacated as a public voice for the word of God, Satan filled that vacuum in seconds. Satan has taken completely over the conversation about sexuality, happiness, fulfillment, companionship. Satan has given all of his forms of those things where the church backed off. When the church is comprised of believing people submitted to the word of God, willing to assert it, you will see a transformed culture. That's just a conviction that I have. I think it's biblical. I think we need to recognize that the, that the culture fails on our watch. 
If you look at, again, in, in Ezekiel, God calls the prophet the watchman. And he says, if you prophesy to, these, to this nation and they do not turn, the blood is not on your hands. But if I tell you to go prophesy to them and you don't, then their blood is on your hands. Now, in both cases, they may repent. But when you look at, and we just sang about it this morning, and, and the scriptures teach us over and over, that when, when Christ comes to his final judgment, it is the nations which gather around the throne. It's not individuals. It is the nations. When Jesus told us to make disciples, he said, make disciples of all nations. So many of us have sort of compartmentalized and individualized the gospel so that it's all about you just being pure. And as long as you have a pure heart, then everything's good. Forgetting that we are called to be salt, which is a preservative in the first century. It's not for tastiness. It's a preservative. It's to keep from rotting. When you see the institutions of marriage and sexuality and education deteriorating around us, that's a lack of preservation. That's a lack of salt. That's a lack of the church. The culture is deteriorating on our hands, my friends. The culture needs it more than ever. The conservative government just uh, was expected in the national election. I think they were expected to do a bit better than they did. Although the Liberal Party was diminished, um, basically a lot of people were saying, you know, what happened to Andrew Shearer and the Conservatives? They should have been able to kind of wash away the Liberals. And in their post-election loss discussions, you know what they came up with? Uh, you know what your problem is, Shearer? It's because you're still pro-life. It's because you still support uh, marriage as being a man and a woman. Basically, the Conservative Party is saying, you're still too conservative. Now, politics aside, I could care less about what label you claim to hold. But this is how the world thinks. So the conservatives want to put forward, a, and I'll call the conservatives hypocrites before anybody else. The conservatives want to put forward a conservative vision for Canada as long as it doesn't rub too many liberals the wrong way. The conservatives, they, they say they got a, a great idea for Canada, but basically let's go poll liberals and find out why they're voting for Trudeau and then, then we can just be that and they'll vote for us. And so the church looks on and says, we sigh and we slump into compromise. We look at the, you know, the conservative party and, and sort of former bastions and guardians of morality. We have been relying so long on public figures to guard the truth of God that the church has forgotten how to do it. We've been busy making videos and, and pouring smoke machines into auditoriums and entertaining people than we have been guarding the truth. And suddenly when that's not happening in the public sphere, we're, we're like kids who had their training wheels just taken off and we're wobbling all over the place because no one has a clue how to contend for the truth in the public sphere. Have you ever gotten to a debate uh, uh, with anybody about the reality of either... Um, childbearing or rearing or education or abortion or homosexual romance or the transgender expression? Have you ever been in a discussion with somebody? How tongue-tied do you feel? Probably very. You know why? Because they've won the war on words. Are you against love? Love is love. What does a Christian say to that? Now, I'm not going to get into that, the apologetic for that today, but what I need, you need to recognize is that the Bible has answers for all of these things. I maybe just woke you up and thought, whoa, 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 we're going to talk about all that? These are biblical concepts that the church can answer. But so often we don't. 
So often we make Christianity about, well, have you stopped swearing yet? Do you smoke cigars on the weekends? That's not a beer in your fridge, is it? And we think this is the substance of Christianity, while children are being led to the slaughter at the hands of the sexual revolution. And we think it's about drinking. This is crumbling on our hands. The culture needs the word of God. Satan has moved in and is shredding human dignity in the name of freedom. Satan says, I'll give you all the freedom you want. You're not bound by your biology. You're not bound by your sexuality. You're not bound by the function of your body. You can do or be anything, and technology is there to serve you. Satan has a vision for humanity. Satan has a vision for humanity. This may sound like doomsday, but friends, the the church has the answer. You know what you do? You raise your kids to know the truth. You don't raise your kids to say, well, it's a different world. And, you know, you go back to the word. You go back to square one. So much of the church says, well, if we're going to win these people, we need to talk like them, think like them, act like them. No. We need to talk like Christians. Lovingly, graciously. Serving them, loving them, absolutely. But nonetheless, not compromising on language. Not compromising on the truth. I would think that the church can be described as very often schizophrenic. We pray for an increase to the kingdom. Like Jesus taught us, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And yet we give up every square inch when we're challenged. We give up every square inch. When it becomes too hard to defend a doctrine, we say, well, there must be another way. I'm going to conclude with one great example from the scriptures. 1 Kings 18. So God's using Elijah. He's speaking through Elijah and he says, you know, my people need to be called back. So Elijah said to the people, the prophet of God said, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. In other words, he's saying, I'm one prophet of God and this other false God, he has 450. So hear me out. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare another bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of my God, the Lord God, who answers by fire. Oh, sorry, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people answered, it is well spoken, good idea. And basically these prophets They spend the whole day singing and dancing around. They cut themselves. They cry out to this false god, and nothing happens. And they slump down next to a useless altar. Friends, this is our culture today. Crying out to the gods to serve them, to let them go their own way. And they are sitting, harming themselves in their own filth. And then at noon, Elijah mocked them. And as midday passed, they raved until the time of offering... And then Elijah said to the people, come near me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And he said, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar. And he made a trench about the altar. It was so great that it would contain two seas of seed. And he put on the wood in order and cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering of the wood. And he said, do it a second time. Do it a third time. Do it a fourth time. And the water ran all around and filled the trench. 
And at the time of the offering, this is how we use the word of God. You pray. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, that the people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord... God, he is Lord, he is God. And then Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them and they brought them down to the brook and they slaughtered them there. When God speaks, God proves himself. Friends, I don't want to be a church that holds the word and says, I'm not sure what God wants to do with it. You don't think Elijah was afraid? 450 prophets standing there, ready to embarrass him. He's got all of God's people behind him that he knows he's got to win to the Lord again. And he says, I've done all these things at your word. And he says, okay, Lord, I've done what I can do. Now you show them who you are. So often we are terrified or embarrassed of what God may do. If we actually declared his word, if we actually brought it forth and said, God, let the results be yours. We believe in this because you have said it. The culture will look and say, truly, he is the Lord. It takes prayer and it takes investment. It takes some blood. It takes some sweat. It takes some tears to do this. Christianity is not about sitting alone in your prayer closet 24 hours a day. That's rhema. It's go and do. Go and swing. Go and contend for the word of God wherever you are. The Heidelberg Catechism, I'm closing with this, gives us comfort. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair from my head falls without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's the confession of a Christian who's got the armor on.